Welcome to the Judgment Call Podcast, a podcast where I bring together some of the most curious minds on the planet. Risk takers, travelers, adventurers, investors, entrepreneurs, or simply mind bogglers. To find all the episodes of this show, please go to iTunes, Spotify, YouTube, or go to judgmentcallpodcast.com. For more resources, including how to become a guest, how to advertise, and to see all the lectures, podcasts, and books I would like to would like you to listen to or read, please also go to our website at judgmentcallpodcast.com. Like this show, please consider leaving a review on iTunes or like us and subscribe to us on YouTube. That will make it easier for other users like you to find us later on. This episode of the Judgment Call Podcast is sponsored by Mighty Travels Premium. Full disclosure, this is also my business. What we do at Mighty Travels Premium is to find the best travel deals for you as they happen. We do that in economy, premium economy, business and first class, and we screen 450,000 new airfare deals every day just for you and present the best based on your preferences. Thousands of subscribers have saved up to 95% on the airfare deals. In case you didn't know, Americans and Europeans can already travel to more than 80 different countries again, South America, in Africa, and in Eastern Europe. To try out Mighty Travels Premium for free, go to mightytravels.com slash MTP. If that's too much for you to type, just type in mtp4u.com, mtp4u.com to start your 30-day free trial. All right, I'm really excited today. I'm here with Mark Sarrell. Hope I pronounced this correctly. I'm still struggling with this. And Mike has served 15 years as an officer, as a SEAL team, in SEAL teams, and five years um, in the U.S. Marine Corps. He's the CEO of the Eklon Front Overwatch, a company that specializes in the recruiting, training, and placement of used special operation forces of veterans in the private sector. Mike is also the author of The Talent War and how special operations and great organizations win on talent. Hello, Mike. Welcome to the Judgment Call podcast. It's great to have you. Yeah, happy to be here and humbled that uh, you invited me. Absolutely, absolutely. You know what? This show is about risk takers. And um, usually I ask people, you know, what's, what's that part in your life um, where you took risk, sensible risk? A lot of people say, well, you know, I put money to it. I put up my reputation on social media. And, but I always ask, so did you ever put your life on the line? And most people say, well, I never had an opportunity to do that. And you're basically the epitome of a risk taker in that line of thought. You really put your life on the line as a CEO, probably on a weekly basis, monthly basis. Um, is that something when you when you think back to your time as a CEO, where you felt you were aware of the risk, it was, as it was in the moment, it was very sensible, or that was more like something you know, that, that with all the training, you don't think about that anymore. That First off, that is a great question. Uh, I will tell you the special operations communities, regardless if we're talking about the SEALs, I mean, the, the, the Army Green Berets, the MARSOC Raiders, all, all of them, and, and JSOC, you're taught to look at risk differently. Where most human beings, 99% of human beings look at risk, they see, they see fear. 
what what they ingrain in us is when we see risk, we see the upside uh, or the potential for reward. And so no one has achieved great things without accepting great risk. So I, w- I wanted to start off with that one. But when you are yeah. passionate about something, when you are willing to give your life for a cause, something you believe in, when you're surrounded by 40 people that believe in the same thing and that are so highly trained, each competent in their roles and responsibilities, all contributing uh, to, to the mission, you understand you're taking risk, but it feels like it's been mitigated as low as it can be. Uh, risk can never, can never be eliminated in its entirety. But our job when we stepped on the battlefield was to make sure in the planning and preparation, because, you know, the, the old phrase is fortune fav- favors the bold. I believe fortune favors the prepared. So we went into every mission as prepared as we could, as well trained as we could. And because of that, we usually came out on top. That's amazing to hear that you can do so much with preparation. And I, I, I've been thinking of this, you know, when you think back to Plato's warrior classes and when you think back to um the the way um, people think about the hero, the hero in the classical myth, you know, who goes out and slays the dragon. And for a lot of people, this is a once in a lifetime experience. And what's weird is now we barely, very few people in our um, current society have that experience. So they they think of, um, you know, being a hero is, I don't know, raising $500,000 and spending it the next day on ads on Facebook. This is This is how things change. Um, how, how do you feel this affects the military from from the inside that society probably has moved so far away from, you know, even, you know, I feel like I mean, that's a certainly certain cities and certain um, parts of the country has moved so far away from this responsibility to be a warrior, to, to be defending this country. You know, being a warrior, the military, uh, the profession of, uh, of war is one of the oldest professions in the world. You know, you look at World War II, almost... Uh, let's say a high majority, a high percentage of young adults went off and fought during World War II. And so they had that that shared adversity. They had that common bond uh, together. You look at the percentage of people that serve in the military today, it's 1% compared to the 99. And I do believe it's sad that the 99% know nothing of our military. Well, the only thing they do know is what they see in the movies if they watch those movies, which don't paint us uh, in the best light. Um, but I think the term warrior is thrown out, uh, very loosely. There's the warrior in the biblical sense, which my friends and I were. Um, but I do believe there are everyday warriors, people that get up, that want to impact other people's lives, warriors that get up, that try to improve themselves as human beings, contributing to a greater cause each day. And as a civilian, if you do that, then, Hey, you're, you're a warrior in your respective profession, as I like to say, I well, the reading. I read the book and I really enjoyed reading it. I think it's it's a it's a mind opening um, to see not just the experiences that you point out, but also how you make use of them today. And we're going to get into that in just a second. Before we go there, I wanted to ask you personally if you can share them. What are kind of the the toughest experiences? You talk about the Battle of Ramadi in the book. Um, what are these things that you feel, seeing so many things that were very impactful, probably on your psyche, where do you feel this was the, the strongest experience, either positive or negative? So the Battle of Ramadi was my second deployment, my second combat deployment of 10 total uh, combat deployments. Um, we lost a lot of guys 
with the units I was attached to. Um, and that's, that's the hardest part. Um, yeah. Is coming home without, without those guys. And, and we always say those are the true heroes. The true heroes are the ones that didn't come home. Um, and most people, most human you know, beings that if they were exposed to that would crumble under the, the volatility, the uncertainty, the complexity and ambiguity under which we operated on a daily basis. I mean, that's why so few are cut out for, for special operations, but I always felt or questioned whether I deserved to be with a group of guys I was, I was with. I watched them conduct selfless valor on a nightly basis. And while we, while we lost friends and we deal with that trauma on a day-to-day basis, I also consider myself extremely lucky to have experienced something that a very, very small percentage of humans get to see. This thing called selfless valor, where people yeah. didn't even contemplate putting their lives on the, the line to save their brethren, their brothers in arms or their sisters in arms. They just, they went into action. They didn't even think, they, they, they just acted. It was almost uh, instinctive. Yeah. And um, watching these men and women who I, I believe are the best uh, of our nation, hands down, and I'll argue that with anyone uh, till I'm blue in the face, uh, I consider myself extremely lucky. So you got to take the good with the bad. War is a tragic, ugly thing that I hope my kids never have to see. But war is a necessary thing. And, you know, there's the, I got, well, I'm blanking on it. I think it's Ralph Waldo uh, Emerson that said, uh, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to stand by and do nothing. And I served with men that didn't stand by and ran to the sound of guns and eradicated evil from uh, from this earth. That That's the one thing that people think that's, that that's war... a strong message, Mike. That's, yeah. that's powerful. Yeah, people that's think that war is not a necessary... People think that war is not a necessary thing. It is a necessary thing. And, and that's unfortunate to say. But No, I, agree. Uh, I fully agree with you. Yeah. Um, it, it is something... We, we, we've been going into this in another podcast, and uh, I, was, I was putting out this hypothesis that, you know, I'm, I'd love to, the world to be without a war, but some wars are just necessary. And we, we, the debate is obviously open, which wars are the good wars, which wars are the, are the bad. And I grew up in Germany, and, you know, I grew up in a lot of this Nazi shame, and you, you kind of develop in Germany, there's no sense of a good war. There's no sense of, you know, what's, what is behind this? Because you, you, you're, you were always on the losing side. And um, there's a lot that has been going on in Germany. And it is, this is a debate on its own. I, I just felt this whole, this, this, we have overdone the, the idea of pacifism, which is a good one. But the road to hell is paved with the good intentions. And I think this is where we are right now. It's very, very obvious and, and, and most of public debate. And that's a strange thing for me, and I guess it feels even more strange for you. To to, to live, you know, who it was Secretary of State. I'm gonna, he served on Iwo Jima in World War II. Uh, I want to say Sec- Secretary of State Schultz. Um, and, and I had an opportunity to sit down with him, and he gave us sort of five points uh, that he thought were important in life. And one of them was don't look at the world through rose-colored glasses. We all want the yeah. world to be uh, a perfect place where, where war is not necessary and there is no evil. But you're dealing with humans. And there are humans out there that will always take advantage of other humans. And if that means to kill them in order for their tribe to, to rule a, a specific region of a country or the entire country, that's what's going to happen. And uh, that, that cycle, quite frankly, it's just it, it's wishful thinking to ever think that we'll break that. 
And, and that is why, yes, uh, you, you don't uh, enter war yeah. lightly. But when you do enter war, and this is where we failed in Iraq and Afghanistan, when you do enter war, you end it quickly to the point where your even your allies, your fellow allies tremble in their boots as they watch you step into a land and, and just eradicate the uh, the threat very swiftly, very violently. It's, you know, it's just part of, I think, human psychology. Uh, being evil is a survival strategy. Um, as bad as it sounds, there's always a certain percentage of people who are born evil. And you could say, okay, maybe it's not their fault, maybe, but it's their fault because they let it out. It is a human survival strategy. And eventually evil becomes so bad and, you know, so Sodom and Gomorrah that at some point you need to you need to destroy it or it will take over the population and everyone will suffer. And that's, that's you know, the, that, that was very well known to the ancients, but it's, it seems to be forgotten with this peaceful last 90 years that we had. I want to move somewhere else. Um, a lot of the book um, is talking about the uh, special training, the initial training, not special training, but the initial training, the basic training that every SEAL has to go through in order to qualify. And I realize 99.9% don't make it. Where, where was your biggest challenge in this? When you when you first got to the SEALs, where did you feel, okay, I can't do this, this is impossible? Well, you know, I had a very, very distinct advantage. Uh, I had served in the United States Marine Corps and specifically in the recon community, which in the 90s was their version of special operations in order to get into the the reconnaissance community in the Marine Corps. And I also became a scout sniper. Um, it is, it, it's a very, again, a very elite few that make it into those communities. So I had exposure to that type of training being constantly cold, wet, and sandy. So when I stepped into SEAL training, uh, my last Marine officer who was a major said, don't quit or you'll embarrass the Marine Corps. And uh, that stuck with me. So I knew there was absolutely no way I was going to quit, uh, but because uh, I was still very much viewed as a Marine. But, you know, to say that the training wasn't challenging, I'd be, I'd be a, just a blatant liar. Every bit of it was challenging. Um, it's a long, right? It's, it's like two, it, weeks, two weeks, three it, weeks. So the, the initial phase, the, the first three phases are 24 consecutive weeks. And Hell Week, the, what, what, oh, wow. you know, Bud's is famous yeah. for Hell Week, which is the five days with very little sleep, constantly wet and sandy, constantly running. Um, yeah, that was extremely challenging. Um, but yeah. it's also fun. I mean, you're also creating yeah. bonds with the uh, the guys in your class. In fact, I, I got a text. I was on vacation with my wife and a text from uh, Dr. Johnny Kim. If you don't know who Dr. Johnny Kim is, he was a Navy SEAL, a Silver Star wow. recipient, became a Harvard-educated doctor and a NASA astronaut all by the age of 34. And he was just selected for the moon mission, if and when that goes. Um, But I got to serve with guys like that. And Ryan Job, who nobody thought would make it through SEAL training, and uh, there was no quitting him because of the way he looked. He he was judged. And I I smile when I look back and all these guys that I went through training with, with uh, Nick Check, who was awarded the Navy Cross, posthumously uh, during a successful hostage rescue of an American doctor in Afghanistan. I got to, I I got to live amongst these men. So again, uh, while we were a wartime era, uh, the good with the bad, I I think I'm blessed. People are are, are constantly saying, Oh, I'm so sorry for everything you've been through. I'm like, don't be sorry for me. I I, I served with lions. I walked with lions. I'm I'm lucky. Because you never will get to experience that. Yeah, I think this is this is very powerful to see. I think society has lost us a little bit. It's just, you know, men have this ability, and especially the ones who have who are strong in leadership, 
I sometimes feel they are also very high in testosterone. Um, that's kind of my personal suspicion, but maybe that's not true. They they form these spontaneous teams, these spontaneous bonds, and if they put or being put to the test, um, you know, at the margin of life, this is where these bonds really start to grow. And because men are very competitive, right? It's all about who, who, who can attract the best and uh, best-looking girls, um, who can attract the biggest audience. It's very competitive. But once men get pushed to this limit, they form these bonds spontaneously. And I feel this doesn't happen so much in modern society because we're at home, we, we, we code computer code. Um, these 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 challenges have put us to the test for better awards, and this can be very dangerous. Um, even the training, I feel, can be very dangerous. Um, these things don't really happen anymore in, in societies, and they even don't happen in many organizations anymore because people, well, how do I say it, are, have gotten lazy, and they lazy, but also in a mental way, not just that they sit all the time, it's also that the 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 ability to 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 create these bonds and the opportunity is is kind of lost. Yeah, we could dissect this one for days uh, on this podcast, but I think there's been it, we the country's over indexed on individuality. It's over indexed on specialization. Um, as a whole, this country lacks a shared adversity. You don't see common bonds between people in, in workplaces like there used to be. If you want to look at a good case study, look at Israel, where almost everyone, you know, Israeli citizen serves in the military. And Israeli has a common threat at, the, at its borders uh, at all times. And so there's this common thread amongst Israelis and a much, uh, much larger esprit de corps uh, amongst the civilians than you find in, uh, in America. We're so busy. And competition's good. Com- competition can be healthy. Yep. But we are so occupied with identifying uh, our differences that we've almost stopped identifying what brings us together as Americans. Um, it, it's, you know, funny enough with the, with the election, uh, you probably know this, is people are viewing people as, as either Democrats or Republicans, not as fellow Americans. And that's how yep. divided we've become. So I, I will end with this. I think social media has made everyone so damn miserable um, that, you <laughs> yeah. know, everyone's posting only the, the, the great moments uh, of their lives, which make other people depressed that they have less. Um, and, and, you know, the best thing I could say, we, 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 I just got picked up for a, a recurring article with Men's Journal called The Everyday Warrior is, you know, in, in the initial article by Men's Journal, uh, the one advice I gave is stop trying to compare yourself with other people. You're running your own race. You know, uh, you've got to determine what makes you happy. It's not the the amount of money that the person uh, that you're comparing yourself with makes. It's not the beauty of his wife. It's not his fitness or her fitness. You've got to determine what happiness means to you and then pursue that. And don't worry about other people. I As I get older, I worry less about uh you know, other people in the sense that um, whatever they have going on in their life, I hope they're happy um, and I'm happy for them. I, now, when I say I, I don't care about other people as much, I mean, in the sense that they're, they're in their own race. But if, if other people need help, then yes, I absolutely uh, care about that. But we have to stop comparing ourselves to uh, to one another. Absolutely agree with you. One, one silver lighting that I see in this whole process and comparing each other, being on social media, I think what happens is the bar for for being happy and successful has been raised. 
and we are going through this initial phase, and that might be that might be a, a complete a complete tunnel we are running into, a dangerous tunnel. But what what could come out, and that's the silver lining for me, is that, that everyone feels like they have to raise the bar, they have to be more successful, they have to be more interested, they have to be more courageous, they have to make better decisions, they have to know more. I think this only applies to a certain percentage of the population. I think that's what social media is due to some people. This might be a good effect, but I, I fully agree with you. It's right now the phase is completely negative and hasn't helped a lot of people. But I have this silver lining, this hope that it might change. It's, everyone is so focused on money. And I, I, I understand. I understand. But more money is not going to bring you more happiness. This is the way I put it. I've met a lot of people that are extremely wealthy in the bank and extremely poor in character. Yes. Money does not bring you character. Again, it goes yeah. back to don't worry about how much someone else is making. Worry about what makes you happy. If that's getting to the mountains every you know weekend and, and spending a night in the mountains with with your family – that that is pure joy and trust me money can't can't get that you know the other thing i say is like there's there's something called the whole man or the whole person concept and the army special forces communities really sort of re, uh, resurrected this in the 2000s and and made it part of their selection process is they're looking for somebody that's fit of body fit of mind and fit uh, of emotion that they're well-rounded in each of those categories. But the, the foundation to, 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 you know, mental and emotional fitness is your physical fitness. And the thing about physical fitness that I love so much, and trust me, I, I'm 43 tomorrow. I go in for a hip replacement. Um, oh, but I'm, I'm, I'm extremely healthy, uh, low body fat. And, and yes, I'm going to have to recover and, and get in and get back into it. But fitness is the one thing that the rich can't buy. It can't be bought in it can only be earned. And I think for a lot of people, if, if you focus on getting physically fit, next comes the, the the emotional stability and the mental stability. And if you're constantly trying to improve your fitness and then you know, you're reading every day and you're learning, you're going to be much more happy. And put the damn phone down. Put the damn yeah. phone down. If an app goes up and down, if it goes up and down, that's bad. That's bad. Huh. They, they are collecting on you. They want to keep you, keep you engaged, keep you scrolling down. And I think if people actually step back and look how much they're on social media, they'd be shocked how much time of their lives that they're actually wasting on that crap. Yeah, those are wise, those are wise words, Mike, and I fully, fully agree. You know, I have two teenage um, kids. I, 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 that, would, that would kind of be my dad's speech to them. And you know what they do? They go into their room and go to TikTok. So it's, it's I, the, the wise words, I think, the wisdom is out there, but the, the generation has a different set of incentives that's hard to pull them out. And I fully agree with you, but it's I, I, I've have, I have my own struggles making this work in my own family. And then what what I what I what I find interesting in your comment is that people are so focused on money. You know, the last time I've seen people so focused on making money, not as an entrepreneur, but, but through you know political intrigue, through political debates, through through political maneuvering. That was Eastern Germany where I grew up. Nobody could be an entrepreneur because it just wasn't an option. Um, but you could make money and you could really be focused on money through political intrigue. And I think this is, well, America was always vulnerable for this. It's just these days it has happened. Maybe it's the 90 years since the Second World War or maybe it's something else. So I, I, I feel like we have to go through this phase to come out on the better side, but the phase won't be great. So one thing that, that really, really, um, I found really interesting is that you grew up in Etherton and I, I used to live in Menlo Park for almost a decade. And I know it's a very affluent community and it's very rare that people 
when they have as entrepreneurial ideas as you, they go the military route. What usually happens is they, you know, go full force into raising money from angels and, and um, venture capital and try to spend it as quickly as possible and kind of get that experience. What made you go a very different route and go to enlist in the military? So very uncharacteristic for a kid from Atherton to uh, to join the military. Very uncharacteristic. So my my mother and my both my mother and father came from San Francisco. Um, you know, my mother's father was a fisherman. She had, uh, three brothers. They, they weren't, uh, you know, well off. Um, my, my, my dad's father was a, uh, a San Francisco policeman. They, they had to earn their way. Um, you know, my dad lived in a two bedroom apartment growing up his, his whole life with his, uh, his family. And they built their own marketing and, and advertising empire in, in Palo Alto. And so watching my dad who came from very little as well as my mom to do as well as they did, which all came down to hard work and character. Um, they raised us very differently from a lot of the people in that town. And my dad uh, made it very clear up front that what he built was not going to be passed to any of his children. He wanted us to blaze our own trail. Unfortunately, when he said blaze your own trail, I took that as go out there, get as in, as in much trouble and uh, adventure as you could to the point where even my fifth grade teacher who was a family friend, looked at my mom and said, your son is never going to amount to anything. That, that's what my fifth grade teacher told, uh, told my uh, mom. And then lo and behold, you know, people now know my name for what I accomplished in the SEALs and the level I made it to in the SEALs. Um, you know, the fact that I, I've got a best-selling book, the fact that I got my M MBA, um, all from a kid that they said would never amount to anything. Um, they just, yeah. you know, people look for people to fit in the mold and that's not how my, uh, my parents raised me. And, you know, when you join the military, here's a funny thing. Atherton, um, kids go off to college, they get in trouble or they get in a bad way. Their parents can, uh, can still step in and pretty much rectify the situation. When you join the military, your parents can't call anyone. There's nothing they can do to get you out of trouble if things are not working out in the military. And I loved it. I, I loved the military. It, it was, it was so easy to succeed in the military. They told you what you had to do and it was on you to execute the, the principles that laid, they laid out to, to, for leadership, um, the level of performance they expected. They, they set their KPIs or OKRs, whatever you want to uh, call them. They, they tell you what the standard is for excellence and then it's on you to, to achieve it. And to the point where the Marines sent me back on their dime to get my undergraduate and then Years later, the Navy sent me back to get my MBA using my Montgomery GI Bill. It, I mean, I credit not only my parents, but the military gave me everything. And it was such a great place to be if you knew how to maneuver within the, uh, the confines of the military system. Yeah, that's that's an amazing story. And I think it's pretty rare. And I think people even on the West Coast, they need to hear that story. And it's just they're not aware of this, I feel. And they don't even consider it. And um, I, I, I went a very different route and had my, you know, first billion start, billion dollar startup when I was 19 years old, and I had a 
I never had someone mentoring me in a way that I felt that I just sought out a lot of mentors, but I, I never had a system like the army. Fortunately, is I never actually thought of that when I was younger. Um, that was also in a different country, but I never had that, uh, that opportunity where I felt, okay, this is a template you can follow and then you can excel from this template. I always felt I have to remake the whole template, which frankly kept me back a lot because sometimes you just miss a lot of learnings that other people can just teach you but you don't have access to them in a way that you can understand. It's not that you can go to college and learn life lessons. You can try, but I found that almost impossible. So you bring up a great point, and you've probably heard me say this before, because it's true. Again, I will argue this until I'm blue in the face. The U.S. military is the world's greatest leadership development program without debate. I mean, you look at the service academies, which I didn't, I, I didn't have what it takes to, to get to a service academy. Uh, I'm envious of them. Um, and then I'm not, because that's a tough four years. But the West Point, Naval Academy, Air Force Academy, those are great leadership institutions. And then you get into the mainstream military. And all it is is constant coaching and mentoring and, and, and constant evaluations and feedbacks to grow you as a leader. Today's higher institutions of higher education are not built to teach leadership. They're not, uh, I, you know, people get very offended at this. The, the professors are very good at their domains. A lot of them, a good majority, are not equipped to, to teach leaders. And, and quite frankly, some of them are, I think, violating uh, the rules of teaching critical thinking by, by, by spewing propaganda in, in, in our, our colleges today, uh, which is killing our, 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 our nation's ability to, to think critically uh, especially when it comes to uh, to politics. But the business world as a whole lacks the leadership development piece. And that's where EF Overwatch, hey, I'm, you know, much like we talked about disrupting spaces in Silicon Valley, guess what? I'm trying to do it in the service industry and I'm having a hell of a lot of fun. I love, and, I love that idea. When I, when I was reading through the book, um, you, you know, that the, the basic to me, the basic excerpt that I took out of it is, how do you how do you hire based on talent instead of skills? And uh, everyone out there is looking at skills. You know, I, I I saw a job ad the other day, and it was for a founder, and I'm like, oh, this sounds interesting. So let's look into this. So what they wanted is literally someone who had a five billion dollar minimum exit, who knows pretty much every VC on the planet. And then he would pay this guy a million dollars. I'm like, you guys are really funny. So this is this is a level of experience that is completely off to what a lot of young people can achieve. And uh, it's also, it's not productive in a way that the, the, the experience will materialize in anything useful to your organization. And I loved your approach, and I hope you can tell us more about it, the way you break it down into certain categories, how to identify talent, because that's obviously the problem, right? It's easy to identify certain skills, but almost impossible for people currently to think about talent in a way that is quantifiable. You said it earlier, people are lazy. The, the default, and you're absolutely correct, the default mode for human beings is the path of least resistance, which we can define as being lazy. And yeah. when most, again, when I say most, it's like 99% of companies, one, they've got the wrong people in, in charge of the hiring process. Special operations learn this very early on. You've got to send your best to run the hiring process. One, not only are they great role models for the job candidates trying to get into your organization, but they have the ability to identify people that are going to be better than them. That's right. A players looking at the young job candidates and saying, that woman right there, 
she's going to be better than we are. We need to get her into this organization. But um, people default to objective, uh, objective things, and usually that comes to the resume uh, or the, the interview process. What was their GPA? Oh, they went to an Ivy League school. Oh, they know so-and-so. Oh, their reference checks uh, came back clean. And, and when you're doing that, you're actually undercutting a, a process that is going to bring in top tier talent. Now, yeah. people often ask us, well, then how do you do this? How do you set up the, the, this process? And the, you know, first thing we have to say, it's different for every organization. You've got to figure out what works for you. One, you better have a solid leadership foundation within your company. Core values are not just something uh, on the wall. And Ben Horowitz just wrote about this. It's, it's not what you say, it's what you do. Um, yeah. It, you know, this has to be your core values have to be something that you live. And what you're ultimately looking for is how do you identify somebody that lives those core values as well? That's the true definition of a culture fit. Somebody that that lives, that that demonstrates in the interview process through behaviors that they believe in what your company believes in and that they live it rather than the fact that they had five years of marketing experience or five years of software uh, sales. No. That experience is tell, tells us where we've been. Character, yeah. mindset, tell you where somebody's going. And that's what you want. Bill Campbell. I like Bill Campbell knew this. Yeah. Well, what I wanted to say is that I, when you have that in the book is, you know, you gotta forget, you cannot fight the, the last war. you got to find a solution to, to fight the next war, which would be much different. And I think... Companies don't have that horizon, or don't. Most of the companies are not interested in that. Sometimes because you know they're in a hurry, they feel like they're over, being overtaken by the competition, and often technological change puts huge organizations that are maybe very well run out of business in a heartbeat. So Warren Buffett always stays away from, or has been staying away from technology businesses for a long time, because that was always his biggest fear that you can identify leadership, and he's been better than others in this. And you can maybe instill a sense of we we need to build this new generation. But how do you go about when when things and especially I see this in the tech companies that I've been working with over the years. Even if you think 15 years ahead, there is basically nothing you can predict. And um, people often restrain themselves and say, "Well, we don't have to invest in leadership because let's see if this thing happens. If it really scales, and then we raise 100 million from Vision Fund, then we're good to go. We go public, and we 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 have a billion dollars, and then we go to Switzerland." But this, I think, this is this is wrong for for a couple of different reasons. That's why I'm I'm here on this podcast. Also, is this is not good for the the way to actually develop an economy long term, and it's also bad for you individually because. This, you know, make money quick scheme might sound good, but it's not about what how much money you have, as you pointed out earlier. The true happiness in life and doing something lasting and having an impact on the next generation, that won't help you if you have a hundred billion, a hundred million, or even a hundred dollars, because if there's nothing in you that you can you can give the next generation, then this is gonna make you very unhappy over time unless you go into drugs, which won't make you long term happy either. <laughs> you know, there's a high school guidance counselor that is having more impact on the world right now than a CEO of a tech company that's uh, about to go public. You're absolutely correct. Um, And again, it goes back to money. The greatest currency in life is not money. It's the impact you have on other people. Now, can you overcome a bad hire? You're talking about leadership development within, uh, within companies. Yeah, you can. 
regardless if you make a good hire or a bad hire, I'll tell you the next part of the equation. That's why we put it in the book. Talent plus leadership equals victory is the second you make that hire. That's when the true and hard work begins because it never stops. It's the leadership development training. You're constantly coaching, uh, mentoring, giving feedback, training your people to make them better than you were. I often talk about the legacy of leadership. The legacy of leadership is not ultimately determined by how you performed as the CEO of Intuit. It's actually how Intuit performed once you left that seat. Did you do your job? Did you train the people behind you? The next generation, and let me tell you, this next generation, these millennials are awesome. I, 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 when people bag on the next generation, you know what that is? That's the generation game, and I, I can get into that. No, this generation's awesome. And most of my tell me my, more my about soldiers, that. Tell me more about that. I will. Most of my most of my soldiers were millennials, and in fact, the 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 young man at the time died at the, uh, the age of 26 to jump on a grenade uh, to save myself and uh, a seal to his right. I was to his left, was a millennial and he didn't even hesitate. So um, you have to constantly train your people. It just never stops. It, you know, Henry Ford, there's, there's an old story that he was in a board meeting and somebody said, what if we spend money on training for our people and they leave? And he looked at everyone in the board and he said, what if we don't and they stay? That's your job as a company is to train your people. Yes, they may leave, but guess what? If you train them so well and they go on to another company and they're so highly successful, or maybe they do their own startup, people are always going to remember that they worked for your company first. Um, But the generation game, this hit me, what was it, 2015. So I had just gotten off my 10 combat deployment. I had requested to leave uh, the the organization I, I was with for six years at JSOC, I, I, you know, I, I had some things going on in my life and I needed to come off the battlefield. Um, I'd done pretty much 10 straight uh, combat deployments. And they sent me to the University of Texas. And when I checked in, one of the instructors was bagging on the young, what we call midshipmen. Midshipmen are the Navy term for the, you know, an officer in training, whether going into the Navy or the Marine Corps. And, you know, they all wear skinny jeans and they need safe space, uh, safe spaces and their snowflakes. And I was listening to them. And I, I have a friend that was a clinical uh, psychologist, uh, does a lot of studies, also a behavioral uh, scientist. And you know, he, he talked about how when the Korean veterans came home from the Korean War, the World War II generation was not all that welcoming of them. You know, the VFWs and, and, and the veterans of foreign war outfits, same thing with the Vietnam veterans is the World War II veterans and the Koreans were not welcoming of the Vietnam uh, era veterans. And so it clicked. And when this guy's talking, I, I sort of stopped in midstream because he was talking a while. And I said, you know what? I, I, I put a name to this. And I'm like, I call this the generation game. And I, and I looked at him because he was older. And I'm like, what do you think the Vietnam era uh, veterans said about you, sir? And he's like, you know what? I don't know. I'm like, well, I, I could probably tell you and the words can't be repeated on this podcast. They probably thought our generation was was a bunch of wusses. And the same thing with the global war, first global war on terror guys, probably looked at our generation of the global war on terror, I'm sorry, the Gulf War vets, and thought we were glory hounds because they, they came, home, came home, they had one parade and that was it. And we've got movies and books made about us. We're always in the news. They, they probably said some pretty derogatory things about us. Hey, just because someone procreated 
you know, their parents procreated before you uh, does not give you moral authority over the next generation. Um, everyone is going to, yeah, that's they're going to, hey, the, the generation again, you know, that's, that's, you, you can go back to the old Greeks and, you know, punishing Socrates was all about fearing that he would influence the youth in a bad way. That that was the main driver, at least officially, or who knows what actually drove them in the end, but that's why they killed him. And it's the same thing, and then I think always the next generation is wars, or it's just okay, we don't really worry about. Um, I fully agree with you, this is a recurring theme, but on the other hand, there seems to be something going on with the millennials, and probably that's the fault of the boomers or our generation, who has put them in, a, in an environment where this is too coddled, um, where they are too comfortable, and they don't get um, out there. I, you know, I want to put my kids into for two years into Ethiopia. That's that's my goal. I don't know how I can pull this off. So they literally go there with the, with the most basic tools ever and are being challenged. And I think that's what we talked about earlier. It, it culminates in saying that the millennials are snowflakes. I, this is, and I agree with you, it's not their fault, but it is kind of their fault that they are not realizing what they're into. And it is kind of their fault to not... Yeah, I always feel they didn't have a puberty. They never really said no to their parents and said, you know, fuck this and uh, let's go on with their lives and do something great. They, they kind of, they, they got into this with the protests and then they, they looted some stores. And I mean, th those uh, actually felt, you know, it's, this outburst was necessary, but now they should need, they should use this creative energy. And of course, everyone's different. I fully agree with you. There's hundreds of thousands of excellent people in that generation. It's just a label we could put on people. So, uh, you know, I will agree with you one there is this resistance to expose our, our, our children to conflict because social conflict on the playground is, is healthy for, for their development because they're forced to work through, to verbalize the, you know, the, the, their, their argument to, to whatever uh, they and the other kids are, are arguing to find a compromise. Uh, there's this resistance to let them fail because we all know that one, and we talked about it in the book, true learning only takes place at one's mental and physical limits. And failure is the greatest life lessons you will ever receive. And so, yes, I, I do get it. Like everyone gets a trophy. No, not everyone should get a trophy. And exactly. for those that don't get a trophy, you, you have to explain why those lessons are so valuable. Is You ask them, hey, does it feel good right now that the fact that you didn't, you know, your team didn't win and you guys didn't get recognized and that, that, that young man or woman is going to say no. And you, you explain to them, I want you to remember that. Now, it's not that you weren't the, the better team on the field, but you guys didn't execute. So this is why we have to practice so hard. This is why we have to prepare so hard every time we step in and give 100% towards, uh, towards something. So, um, yeah, society has changed. Here's, you know, I'm probably going to have Facebook and, and Instagram and all the rest uh, target me after this. It, there's something about the tech community that is not healthy. And yeah, these kids are overly uh, exposed to tech. Uh, I remember there was an article in the San Francisco Chronicle that said, uh, you know, how tech is killing the culture in San Francisco. San Francisco, our family has been there since 1899. We came across Treasure Island. And San Francisco is, it, it is one of the most beautiful cities. And you cannot pay me to go back to my hometown anymore. It's a disaster. That, I still live in San Francisco. I, 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 I know. It's a disaster. I, I, it's, 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 it's bad policy and bad policy is a byproduct of bad leadership. There's something that the, the, the tech culture does in terms of, uh, of leadership to, to areas. I'm in Austin now 
and we've got the uh, the brain drain going on and people moving to Austin uh, wholesale. I know yeah. HP just announced they're going to uh, to Houston. Uh, we've got Tesla, Apple inbound as well as Oracle. And, and I have a fear, having seen this movie before, that the culture in Austin will change for the uh, the worse. But th- there's something about tech I can't put my finger on that that does have a way of killing cultures and, and bringing in bad or reinforcing bad leadership principles. It's a good point you're making. And I think that it's something weird with tech that was really um, taken back um, about two years ago when when, uh, when we were, you know, in the middle of Trump's presidency. And uh, we started seeing a lot of people getting blocked on social media. And I'm like, I know some of the founders personally. I know the investors. And I really expected them to speak up and say, you know, Mark Zuckerberg eventually did it. It took a long time. It's kind of wishy-washy. But this was a core principle of, of, of you know, freedom of coercion. Um, from living in a free society. Um, and it's it's always going to be limited to some extent, but making a powerful statement would be beneficial to their platforms. It's not even like they would put this out and you know they, they would be offline the next day because everyone hates them. Some people would, but they never came around to saying this in a, in a straight out way and executing on it. And I was so disappointed because these are, you know, they're beyond rich. They, they, they've made their mark on the world. So why not do the right thing? Why, why go into into places that are really dark. And I'm, I'm really disappointed by, by by CEOs and in the Silicon Valley. It's now, it bubbles up a little bit. I see a bunch of people who, who are more outspoken about it, but it took way too long. And and frankly, I don't, as, as you, I can't put my finger to it. And uh, I, I, I feel like I always expected the real progressivism is actually actually libertarian. It's, it's freedom for people involved. And what we ended up with the complete opposite. And I think to all the CEOs, it's completely visible, but they completely ignore it and they're too scared or they're too worried or maybe it's their family. I really don't know what it is, what's holding them back to do the right thing. If I asked you where where we expect our leadership to be the very best in this country, I know you would say Washington, D.C. That's what we expect, but we get the complete opposite, complete opposite. And there is... I was, I was talking to a, a, a longtime SOCOM, which is the U.S. Special Operations Command psychologist. Uh, he was in the Air Force for close to 30 years, and he nailed it. He's, he said, you know, back when I grew up, there was a civility between Republicans and Democrats, and there is none now. And when we can't see Republicans and Democrats operating as a tribe under one common banner, which is being an American, the naturally the, the rest of the country is going to follow uh, follow suit. But what is concerning is that someone can't speak against the the loud minority and express their uh, their their opinions in a very constructive way. It doesn't matter how you you articulate your opinions. If you disagree with that mi- that 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 loud uh, minority, they'll just attack you. And so I think what people have defaulted to is this thing called, and I know you know what this is, virtue signaling. And virtual signaling does does nothing. It's it's pure surface level semantics with no action behind it. And we used to have a saying, doing is greater than talking. And everyone's virtue, virtue, virtue signaling and no one's taking action whatsoever. You know, brother, I, I, I grew up in a communist country. So I, 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 I've seen this movie before, right? I've, I've seen it for many years and I know how this ends. And I, I know also, you know, the, the German revolution was, re- there was no bloodshed, almost none. You know, there were literally, there was, it was business as usual. And then within a week, there were 10 million people out of a population of 70 million on the streets and said, okay, that's it. We were not doing this anymore. 
and it was over. Like the next week later, the border was where came down. So all it actually takes is reach this this melting point. And I don't actually know what the catalyst was at the time. And nobody could see it coming. Like it went from zero people on the street because they were afraid they're getting shot to 10 million on the street. Now, obviously, you can't shoot 10 million. But that was pre-internet, pre-WhatsApp. I don't even know how people organized all this. Literally, the whole population of babies and old people were on the street with their wheelchair. So I think that my... I know there's a, there's a silver lining. I just know it's probably not happening tomorrow. That, that That's an amazing story. And, you know, I've, I've spoken to uh, quite a few entrepreneurs that, uh, you know, this woman created a proprietary technology uh, in the, uh, the pharmaceutical, uh, I'm sorry, um, facial uh, industry. And she's from Russia. And she was almost scared of what she was seeing going on in the country now because she had lived through yeah. communist times. Um, we but, all are. Every, everybody who's had this experience sees the pattern. It's, it's, it, there's nobody, nobody who doesn't see it. You know, the, he, he, Thomas Sowell said it best, uh, you know, the, the famous uh, economist. Yes. No. He said, uh, you know, the true definition of greed is thinking you're entitled to what somebody else earns. And I've never felt entitled to, to, because Jeff Bezos has so much money, I should have. No, no. I actually, I applaud Jeff Bezos for what he's earned. I think if Jeff Bezos wants to give back, he should be holding weekly seminars for small to, to mid-sized business leaders on how to grow their business so quickly. I think that's how he, he gives back to society is, is spreading some of the, the, the experience that he's, uh, he's gained. But it's not by uh, us going and claiming uh, – uh, you know, authority over his, uh, what he's, uh, he's earned. So that, that, that's dangerous, uh, in my eyes and, uh, having served for 20 years and right. in, in, in combat deployments, that that's a little, uh, unsettling to me right now. Yeah. I was, you know, when I read your book, I was like, Whoa, this guy really is in for, for a hard sell because what the divorce departments, when you're an entrepreneur to speak to is the HR department, A, because they're very steady, steadfast, you know, they don't change. So selling them software is a forever sales cycle. And now a lot of these HR departments are 100% PC. Um, they, there's no, obviously they still do a managerial task and they administrative things, but everyone I feel who has been hired in the HR department is still there and hasn't been booted out is super political correct. And I wonder how you deal with this. So it must be really tough for you guys to go through. So this is where, and mark my words, if we come back one year from now, I, I will have made headway, is that HR and in fact, George Randall, the, the other co-author, and I, and a few others were, uh, you know, some some very prominent female HR leaders want want, want in on this to write a article uh, for the Wall Street Journal on uh, why HR is in jeopardy of becoming obsolete. Is HR is intended and designed not to be a compliance function? That that's legal, and, and lawyers can do that as long as we know the the legal compliance and what we have to meet. That's fine. The role of HR is to build elite teams, come up with leadership or, or talent management programs to continually develop your talent and then retain them at all costs. That's the point of HR. But now it seems like what, what's the two words that HR is uh, you know, synonymous with? Diversity and inclusion. That, that's what we're focused on. And diversity and inclusion is important. No one's going to debate that. But that's not the primary function of HR. It's to build elite teams for companies. And you are right HR has not become uh, is not known for 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 a place that A players end up uh, uh, settling in, uh, unless you look at women like Patty McCord for Netflix, 
or, or Tracy Keogh from HP, the CHRO for, for HP, who went out and found Meg Whitman. She knew how to identify talent. She brought in Meg Whitman, and HP was a different company because of it. They're Four tigers now, right? That was 50 yeah. years ago. I'm not doubting the HR departments had, you know, they, they were great. But I really feel 90% of HR departments, if you cold call them, you end up with someone who's super politically correct. I don't even know how you guys approach um, the HR department. So how do you get into this? You, you actually approach CEOs? So this is why EF Overwatch focuses on small to mid-sized businesses. I work very little with Fortune 500s. I, I almost refuse to. It's yeah. like when a veteran comes out and says, hey, I want to go into the tech sector. And, and I'll, I'll, I'm, I feel obligated to say, hey, don't do that. You will find that the culture does not resemble a tribe whatsoever. And they've got all these preconceived notions about what veterans are. And they're completely wrong. In Fortune 500s, when I do talk to people in the HR department, it has not been fun. It has yeah, not been fun at all. So that's why we decided. I say I said to hell with the Fortune 500s. Unless there's a Fortune 500 uh, company out there that believes in the same belief uh, as us. They, they have a talent mindset that your people are the strongest competitive advantage you can ever hope to achieve and maintain. That's a talent mindset. And when a Fortune 500 has that, that mindset, which is uh, em embodied in their HR department, that's somebody I'll work with. But EF Overwatch and something called the Talent War Group, uh, we, we, we are going to, here's my initiative, we are going to become the primary source for very aggressive HR leadership in this nation. If a company wants a very aggressive HR leader who's all about building elite teams for an organization, they're going to come, come to us to identify that HR leader and then source them into those companies. I love that vision. I love that. And I, you know, you remember, um, my gosh, I forgot his name, who was fired from, from Google for writing an essay um, and just using it as a source and displaying it correctly to a, 90, to a very large extent um, the knowledge we have about the big five traits um, and comparing this. And these are statistical objective, objective truths, so to speak. And he was comparing it to different genders. And he, he, he didn't even get an, an appeal. He was fired like on the spot. And uh, he's famous on it. You know, he got famous and he, he made his money with that fame. But still, uh, as, a, as a company, I'm like, this can't be right. Like this, this is so far from the ethos of Google. Like, you know, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm maybe a naive tech founder or was. Um, the 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 the, um, the brotherhood of tech CEOs, you know, that was, and I, I came to the Silicon Valley in 2001 when you, the, the people who were left were in the East Coast bankers, starry-eyed, and they just wanted to make a couple billion dollars. Those were the real tech founders who were like, okay, this thing is blown up, so let's focus on improving the world. But none of this is improving the world. Everyone knows this is making it better by stereotyping people and then just not even listening to the facts. I, I was amazed this happened to Google, but it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't an, an exemplary case. It could have happened to hundreds of different cases and probably has since then. Yes, you, you'll be crucified very, uh, very quickly for speaking your opinion, even in a respectful manner uh, in this day and age. And, and you, again, having come from a com communist uh, country, know that that moral censorship can it becomes a very dangerous game very dangerous yes especially if it's internalized you know then you get so far away from the truth then nobody can really help you anymore because nobody even investigates the truth anymore and that's really really strange um i i realize that that's that's one, one more thing i wanted to to ask you about there's been a couple of entrepreneurs coming out of the to the military the seal teams um this being even hyper circle willing um, now you who make a, a big impact also on public opinion by writing books, by being on podcasts. 
Um, do you think that the SEAL team way to run a SEAL team, and that must be really new from my point of view, is kind of a, a school for entrepreneurship? Because entrepreneurship has been put so much on the back burner in the rest of society. There's basically very few role models that are left. Let me share one statistic with you to, to reinforce what you're saying. So when World War II was over, the veterans that came home, 50, it was actually 49%. 49% started their own businesses. That's one yeah. out of two uh, veterans that came home from cool. World War II that engaged in entrepreneurship. For veterans today, it's roughly about 4 to 5% of veterans coming home. Wow. Very low, very low. Now, albeit the economic environment is, is drastically different, uh, you know, potentially with, with the digital transformation going on, it, it's, it, maybe it's much harder to, uh, to, to break into, uh, into markets that have become so uh, consolidated. Um, so, you know, special operations is like a entrepreneurship academy. It absolutely is. Um, one, you know, you are, you are taught to be innovative and adaptive. I mean, not only taught, but you're screened for that. Does this person have the ability to adapt to the environment and find a way to win? That's what we're looking for because uh, we emphasize in special operations something called effective intelligence. I would rather have somebody with an IQ of 100 than somebody from an Ivy League school with a, a 125 IQ. But if that person with 100 can apply the, the intelligence they have in an effective way to identify solutions to real-world uh, problems for which no book solution exists, then they are highly effective. They're problem solvers. And they look at things differently. Now, the person with the high IQ, uh, what we've seen is that beyond a certain intelligence level, uh, increased intelligence doesn't equate to higher performance. So, uh, you know, some of the smartest people I ever served with in the SEAL teams came from Ivy League schools. And unfortunately, they suffered from a lot of paralysis through analysis. And yeah. we've seen this in the, in, in the tech culture is the person that comes up with the idea is not always the best person to commercialize it and, and build that, that company. That, you know, if you do find those people, then, uh, then they are people that I want to have dinner with and just pick their brains uh, all day long. Not only are they wildly intelligent, they, they, they have effective intelligence as well. Someone, um, someone we should have said... You should say that visited Charles Murray. You know the debate about his book, and people still go crazy about it. Um, whatever it is he found, it doesn't have any or has very low prediction above a certain threshold. And I think people don't realize that they take IQ as a, you know, a hundred percent linear predictor for actual performance in life, and that's not true. I mean, there's certainly something to it, but if it's and I fully agree with you, if it's 150 or 120, the the effectiveness of a higher IQ goes down a lot, and people don't realize that. So if you look at the academic environment, it is a very contained and structured environment. And then when you leave, leave that, the world is nothing like that. It is, I think you would agree that tech, the tech sector, to include uh, the American private sector, is fascinated with how special operations runs, builds and runs their teams, and for good reason. I mean, we are the only organization that doesn't hire for industry experience. We hire for potential. We are very good at identifying potential. And as you said, we're still young. We're only half a century old. But um, every problem we faced in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Somalia, and other regions of the world, uh, we faced problems for which nobody else could tackle it because there, there, it was not clear cut. We had, to, we had to identify means 
and ways to accomplish the uh, the mission. Often other organizations failed. They took a, uh, a first attempt. And then when they failed, they'd hand it over to us. And, and sometimes it took us months to identify a way to accomplish that specific mission. And I was always taken back by the fact that my guys were, they were all problem solvers. And they can all remain calm in very stressful environments, which we all know a startup, oh my God, and you've lived it. That, that is the highs of the highs and the lows of the lows. You can be on top of the world one day and the next day you're like, oh my God, are we going to make, make uh, payroll? It's emotionally very taxing. You don't feel you risk your life. You, you maybe get a heart attack, but you don't feel you risk your life. And I, I fully agree with the, with the way that problem solving is, is this huge part of entrepreneurship that people, there's probably the urgency is missing. They're still problem solvers. I see this with my kids as much time that they spend on social media. They are really good problem solvers, but they, they see it from a very different focus and they, they, they're never on that edge where I feel like, whoa, we really have to like up the ante. They're like, okay, let me think about that. But they, they very much come up with new and interesting solutions I never thought of. So the, that, that skill I think is still in people, but it's not being promoted. It's not being cherished. And that's a big um a big problem how we build this society because well, when you when you when that's what I, I found is extremely interesting what you said just a moment ago about the the quota of people starting their own business when they come back from a war and it's social I don't know what the exact numbers were were but there were millions of people who were um, enlisted in the Second World War and if really we had say one million people who came back these fifty percent. Um, where entrepreneurs, this maybe can explain this big stagnation when this is what I've been talking about for quite some time is that, and those are, nobody knows that they are maybe military values because we have this stagnation since the 70s. You know, people started their own business, it kind of fizzled out, the next generation took over in the 70s. Those were not as motivated. They had no, not the same skills as the people who actually fought in Germany. And since then, outside the tech industry and finance, we basically didn't produce much, which is really puzzling when you see what happened from 1945 to 1975. Yeah. And maybe that's the solution. Nobody really can answer this question. Why do we have the big stagnation? How do we solve it? And maybe what's going to happen is we, we're going to have enlistment again. We send people to a war because there's a war with China, and that's how we solve it. By going through this extreme negative of a wide-scale war, we might actually make the country better off. I actually think the people that fought the Cold War with Russia were probably more equipped to enter the private sector because that, that nothing was clear about the Cold War. That it was yeah. it was very abstract and it required extreme critical thinking uh, to to fight a war to which you did not know if you were winning at times. Um, so you know that replicates a, a, a entrepreneurial environment. You know you said something about military like values. And this is what we're, we're trying to bring through this, this organization I, I call a talent work group, which is just nothing but 40 mostly special operations leaders that now have broken into the business world. And a lot of them are CEOs or C-suite uh, leaders. They've been successful in both domains. But there is no military values. There is no difference between military leadership and private sector leadership. Those principles are all the same. And that's where I, you know, I often hear people are like, well, how you lead in the military is not how you lead in the private sector. And I sort of tilt my head and I say, how is that? Like, we just can't bark orders at people and they go and run. And I don't know what they think we do in the military. But if I barked orders at my SEALs um, and they weren't smart orders, the guys would say, no, we're not doing that. Um, you had to build coalitions. But don't tell me that discipline is unique to the military and not unique to very successful 
entrepreneurs. Some of the most disciplined people, even more so than the military that I've ever met, are extremely successful uh, entrepreneurs that can do it over and over and over again, that they can start a new startup and, and exit within a number of years. They've identified processes to which they adhere extremely rigidly because they know they're successful or, or the ability to build teams, to build coalitions, to build relationships that, that works in the military, that works in the private sector. There's only just leadership. That's all there is, is leadership values. Yeah. What differentiates the military from the private sector is that we actually teach those. We sit the, the young men and women down who join the military and we teach them about all the leadership principles and we explain why they're so important. Harvard can't yeah. do that. No Ivy League school can do that. No state uh, school can do that. They could. They're the they not doing it. Well, what I was just trying to say is these religious values, kind of, um, they are fatherly values, you know, encoded fatherly values over the last couple of generations. And these fatherly values often uh, show a blueprint how you can develop safely and how it is good to develop and how this also helps society because otherwise these religions wouldn't be around anymore. But they are a blueprint to a positive society development. And now we don't use these blueprints anymore, which to an extent is good, gives us more freedom. But on the other hand, we, we, we don't tell people, okay, go this way and this is safe um, and really push them into this. But if you have a different opinion, then, you know, you can live out of it, outside of it. That's great, too. And I think the military has that blueprint. They are able to develop this sense of this is where you should be. And um, that's why the military is the only one who can pull this off. And I agree with you that the, the, the leadership values are the same, but you've got to have... And you can say, you can be a postmodernist and say, this is all power. But yes, you need some power to install it in people, let them mull it over for a couple of years, and then you can still change their mind. But eventually, they, they need to learn the lesson. And nobody goes to church anymore. Like, you know, again, this is not in all states true in the US, but in many places. So I think we've lost that way. And I, I don't have a good solution how to bring that back. And I love the way where you come from because you actually have a beachhead into this. I, I will say that the, other interesting thing that I, I I just couldn't understand while I was in the military. Now I can better sort of contextualize it and articulate it now that I've been out and back into mainstream society. I'm a civilian again. Is in the military, they teach a, a emotional strength or an emotional stability. Where if you and I are having a conversation with differing views, is that I don't lose my emotion and, and lose my sense of logic and yell at you because you have a differing opinion is they, they, they teach you this, this ability to listen to others, to respect their, their views and their perceptions because they're entitled to those views and perceptions because they have different experiences. And ultimately, remember that you're on the same team. Bring a sense of logic to the, 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 the discussion or the argument so that you can identify a common way to move forward. Now that I watch the way some of uh, my fellow Americans uh, react to different, differing opinions um, and they lose their emotion, um, it, it's there, there's a lack of emotional stability. Um, and, and it goes back to civility that I mentioned er, earlier uh, amongst Americans to just have a conversation about differing opinions, ultimately with the common goal of identifying a, a way of head, a, a solution to move forward together, a, a compromise. And we, 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 we do that in the military. And, and I'm seeing the, I gotta hate to say it. I, I hate to make sweeping uh, sort of, remarks, but I, I see a large lack of emotional stability and ability to converse uh, on differing opinions. Yes, absolutely. I mean, that's that's very obvious. And the I think what's missing is the fatherly value. And this is maybe born out of feminism or born out of postmodernism, but the whole idea of fatherly values to use as a blueprint, you can still break up. 
uh, that's that's been lost, and that's we see this. Oops. Yeah. Hey, I, I'll tell you what. Tell you um, what. I was fortunate uh, with the family I, I, I had. Grew up in a very uh, Catholic family. Um, both my father and my mother were instrumental in my upbringing in very different ways. You know, um, father, you know, taught me the sense of discipline, hard work. Uh, my mother, same thing, but also the very emotional side, uh, you know, w- you know, really pushed me to, to become a, a, an emotionally sta- stable young, uh, young adult. But to this day, I will always tell everyone, even though my mom is Italian, she's like five, three, I still fear that woman. And I will feel that fear that will woman until the day I die. Um, my dad was a big man, but when my mom, uh, when, when she, uh, when, when she was upset, oh, stand by, you, you, you ran out of the house as quickly as possible and got out of harm's way. Okay. So I only had one last question. Um, we really want to be conscious of your time, but this has been an excellent discussion. I really like it. And I don't know if it came through my, um, my last question. I was just thinking as the last question. The framework you describe in your book is very quantitative, how to describe talent and how to, to see talent. Do you think there is a way, and I, I work with different AI strategies a lot, is there a way to actually predict AI by what you see? Say you go through someone's LinkedIn profile, you go through lots of <clears throat> data you find in CVs. Could you, kind of like ZipRecruiter, right, where you, where you identify talent, um, you have a model that actually, you know, you compare the people who had good talent and how they were hired do you think that's that's a system that could be built on top of LinkedIn and AI that predicts talent? Do I think it's possible? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. Are we even close to being there yet? No. And okay. somebody released an article, and, and I'll try to hunt it down, about AI in the, in the recruiting process. And the example they used was AI couldn't properly predict the outcome of this last present, uh, presidential uh, election. AI was anticipating that Biden was up as much as 12 to 13 percent uh, above Trump. And as we saw, that was wildly off. Um, yeah. I, I believe it is possible. A lot of companies, actually, Eastern uh, European, if not European companies, are, are playing with AI in, in the recruiting process. I think it'll eventually be another tool in a multivariate uh hiring process. It will be a tool, but can you ever remove uh, the humans from the equation? No. There is something to say, and I'm not kidding you, this would happen, where one of the guys would have a gut feeling about an individual. All the other instructors would be, they would just, they were in love with this individual. They're like, hey, we got to get him into the SEAL community, but there would, would always be possibly one instructor that's like, hey, I've got a gut feeling that I can't articulate that tells me this guy would not be a, a good hire. And the other instructors would, by majority, say, hey, we understand, but we're still going to we're gonna let him in. And that individual would go on to do something unethical within about one to two years. So the human factor, the X factor, uh, is always part of it. And, and when somebody engages and they're involved and they've created a systematic, repeatable interview process that judges people on character, attributes, and mindsets, and the more hires they get under their belt, they, they develop that, that, that intangible ability to identify something that, that is not easily articulable, articulated about whether somebody would be a good or a bad hire. So um, that's something that just AI can't do right now. 
And I think we're still a little bit away. I fully agree. But one thing that I, I know AI does pretty well, if you can, if you have a good data set, and you know, the recruiting has a lot of good data on people, basically what they put in, in their CVs, doesn't have to be structured, can be very unstructured. And what AI is really good at is finding patterns and we know the outcomes, we know the people who have done well um, because we, we, they either got hired or they've done well in the organization. So we have, um, they call it the labeled data set. We, yeah. we can easily use this and see if there's any patterns and what's the predictive rate. And I thought that applies so well to something where AI, it can have a bias, but very often it doesn't have, you talk about that in the book, AI doesn't have as, many, as much as a human bias for better or worse. They don't have a sixth sense, which yeah. I fully agree can be a problem. But I, this, what you described there, these, this, this new, to an extent, it can be a quantitative matrix. What you described is like, whoa, AI can solve this, not as a full, full process, but like, the, the pre-interview and and maybe even the, the convincing of an organization, um, you know, there is a statistical pattern. These people will, will do better even if they don't have the skills. Um, I always felt this is a good pitch if you can say, oh, we, we know the, the hard sciences and we figured this out. And second, of course, we, we've lived it and we know that the system works and we know the human factor. But what you're saying AI is not is not something you're looking at right now. It's not something, and you know the other factor too is the, the, the factor that you're going to have to overcome HR, who's going to naturally have a resistance to this because you're, you're going to put fear in people who think they're going to be out of a job in the, in the HR function. Beyond yeah. that, I think once you do have an AI that is proven to uh, evaluate, uh, you know, language and voice in response to questions, as well as kinesics, the, the study of body language, uh, coupled with, with, with other things, yes. I think AI will be an invaluable tool in that, even involved in the reference check process. When you get one of their reference checks on a Zoom, you can evaluate their body language if they're lying or, or you know, basically how they truly feel about the candidate. Uh, reference checks are not dead, but I think you know, once you have something that can do that, both language and body, body language, I think, yes, you'll, you'll have an invaluable tool. On that note about the future, um, um, I have to wrap this up. And thanks for, for giving us your time. That was spectacular, Mike. Really, thank you for coming on to the podcast. Dude, thank you for having me. I've, I've enjoyed the conversation, and I'm sure we will do this again. That would be my hope. Thanks again for coming. All right, brother. Thanks, man. Have a great day.